I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with a conversation with Daniel Alexander and Richard Loring of Domos Co-Living about living together. Not like that, but close. From millennials moving back home to traditional multi-generational cohabitation, the idea of co-living has not only gained steam lately, but taken hold in cities across the U.S. Home ownership, once the foundational idea behind the American dream, is in many circles giving way to the idea that co-living provides all someone wants and nothing they don't. But what role does design play when you're catering to the many without serving only a few? That's what I wanted to know when I spoke with Daniel and Richard from Domos Co-Living. Daniel is principal and Richard manages construction and design for Domos. Some thoughts as you listen. If you're a designer, this will shed some light on the approach to application of design and flow. Architects, there's something here for you as well in the structure of a space made for many that feels cozy and still personal. Thanks for downloading, streaming, and subscribing to this episode of the podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do, so you don't miss a single episode of the show. Like this one, with Daniel Alexander and Richard Loring of Domos Co-Living. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zenger, a progressive brand that was built on a promise to provide designers, architects, and homeowners with the right materials to do their very best work. That promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But it's more than that. Walker Zanger believes strongly in serving the trade with a trade program that makes the specifying process simple with the support you need. They've been staunch supporters of the trade since 1952. In 2020, I launched a series in partnership with Walker Zenger called The Showroom. This intimate interview series showcases some of the very best creatives in the business today. Please join us live or catch every episode recorded so you can enjoy it on your schedule. Walker Zenger is on the cutting edge of design featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. So check out any of their showrooms across the country or shop online. WalkerZenger.com I always love a good origin story. So why don't y'all tell me sort of how Domo's Co-Living happened, why it happened, how you two started working together? Because I know you've, you both have, you know, between the two of you, you've got multiple, multiple years um, in the industry. And I, I also think it's interesting because with what you do, you've sort of seen a societal and cultural shift actually come to you in the business, which I think is, is really interesting. So, you know, either one of you can go first, but I'm curious, um, you know, Daniel, maybe we'll start with you. Tell me about the company. How did you get started? Wow. Very, very long uh, question. Let me see if I can do my, a good job of editing while I, while I speak. So I'm, I'm one of the principals and founders of Domos and Richard is uh, Richard Loring is the head of all of our design and construction um, and we are very, very, very fortunate to have somebody of his caliber working on our team just right, right out of the gate. I want to say that um, the other principal, Derek Barker, is not you know, with us right now today. So we brought our two companies together almost two years ago and we have similar backgrounds. Mine is from in working in the workforce housing, attainable housing space, pretty much since I got out of UCLA in 1996, dating myself here. Um, 
you know, and uh, I come from humble beginnings. I grew up in, in Los Angeles. I lived all over the city, got out of college and pretty much hit the ground running in real estate. I had the real estate bug, started buying, you know, single families and small uh, apartment units and small duplexes and things like that, all the way up to maybe five or six units, probably for the first like five to seven years of my career. Um, was always fortunate to be able to attract interesting people to my projects. Uh, started that early on in my career. So I met a couple of uh, young architects from Yale, and they really liked what I was doing in the inner city, kind of beautifying the inner city, buying dilapidated houses, reorganizing, rebranding them, so to speak, and then, you know, selling them for a profit, but also providing a really cool space for a family to, to you know, to own. And uh, this, these uh, couple guys really were interested in what I was doing and decided that, hey, for a very uh, reasonable price, they'd help me with a lot of the design. So I start, I kind of, that was my first kind of entry point into design. Um, and from that point, I started to develop a style of how I remodeled uh, properties and space in general uh, and started to grow my career. Uh, and right around 2005, 4-ish, I, I met Richard Loring and um, syndicated some equity for a few of his projects. And, um, and I'll, I'll let, I, won't, I won't jump into Richard's story, but uh, I, that, was, that was when I really understood that I didn't know much about design <laughs> at that point. Um, um, you know, his, his, his construction acumen, his design acumen is unparalleled. And I just, I basically have been learning ever since I've met Richard. And so... Met Richard, was fortunate enough to do a few projects with him and uh, with an architect by the name of Lorcan O'Hurlihy. And at the same time, I was still buying and, and, uh, and selling um, functionally obsolete apartment communities. I really started to pick up the, the volume of what I was doing around 2008, 2009. Um, found my way to the Southeast around 2009 uh, specifically in North Carolina and at, in uh, Atlanta and started buying larger apartment communities and condominium communities and taking the design kind of chops that I've started to develop to some degree, attracted some uh, design construction folks in those markets to help me rebrand communities and, uh, and just really de develop a knack for it. And then also developed a knack for installing programming into those communities so we do stuff like after school programs, literacy programs and things like that. So it around 2010, 11, my entire career started to kind of culminate into this style of, of rebranding and bringing in services to communities. And what that did was create a stickier tenant population and a happier population uh, and more educated population in terms of being financially literate and, and just having after school programs, a safe place to bring their family and grow their family from and things like that, launch their family from. And so met Derek Barker along the way, he was going to buy a, a community from me and he decided not to go through with that transaction, but we stayed friends. Um, he, uh, uh, him and a group of Harvardites <laughs> came, uh, you, know, you know, wanted to, uh, to, I guess, be the second phase of a, of a community that we were selling and, and decided to do something different. But I was always interested in some of their their uh, concepts. And, and one thing that we noticed across a lot of our properties are were that people were roommating a lot. It was just a continued growing uh, theme in the larger floor plans. 
And so you'd get a two or three bedroom, you get two or three families. <laughs> and so that became a theme. Uh, but as a property owner, we weren't really sharing in that revenue. And so uh, Derek's guys, you know, basically came up with a way to share in that revenue by introducing co-living on site. So they would be the ones kind of handling that process and professionalizing that process. And so we decided to, to combine our track records, to combine our, our companies to pursue providing attainable housing through co-living. And so though most of our apartment complexes that we buy today are market rate uh, communities with mostly traditional units, we will still introduce a bit of co-living as a way to have attainable housing. And so define, define the idea of co-living as you, as you envision it. Um, co-living is just shared living, just simple, simple as that, just like co-working. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, for me, it's not very new anymore because I've been working at it for, for several years now, but it's, it's something that's been going on <laughs> for over a hundred years. I mean, people, it, the early Airbnb before it was Airbnb, people taking in borders or things like that. I mean, this is something that's been going on in our, in our country for a long time. It is a way for people to live in the urban core affordably without having to move furniture around or actually have a long-term um, place, I guess a, a single family residence, they can actually just move into a place that's already furnished in an urban core near jobs, near social opportunities, near amenities and things like that, close to transportation hubs without paying the typical cost that is associated with living like that. And over the last 10 years or so, the millennial generation mainly fueled this urbanization that we're seeing right now. And many might say that it's slowed down because of COVID, which is true, but the numbers have probably been affected in the low single digits. It is still occurring and they still prefer, you know, that type of living. And so for us, we see it as simply shared living, fully amenitized shared living in areas where you have social and economic opportunities. Richard, when, when did you join the company and, you know, sort of talk about your role in this as well? Okay. Um, First of all, uh, you know, just a, a minute or two of background. Um, the, uh, my educational background is in architecture. So I, I went to the uh, University of Michigan, received uh, both an undergraduate and a graduate degree in architecture. So that was my first area of interest. Um, I was also, you know, I also enjoyed the construction process, which is not atypical among architects. Um, but I enjoyed enough to want to get more involved in, in the construction process. So I uh, eventually, um, about three, four years after I finished uh, college, actually started a construction company. And so, I, you know, for a very long time, I was involved in both architecture and construction. And of course, that, that can lead you into development, which it did um, around 2001, 2002. Um, and so I did uh, some development under my, under my own banner uh, for uh, seven or eight years. Um, and then fast forwarding, uh, Daniel called me a couple of years ago and he said, hey, we're, you know, we're looking at some new ground up projects and, uh, you know, we would like some help with those. Uh, you know, are you interested? And I was. <laughs> so... I started traveling back and forth to Atlanta, which is where the company's actually domiciled, and um, began working on, on these larger ground-up projects for, uh, for Domus. Um, 
you know, basically overseeing selection of the architects, the engineers, general contractors. You know, these are these were projects. These are projects of scale, so you need uh, you need a serious uh, practitioner. You, you know, you have to you have to work with the best if you want to build the best. And um, so I've been involved with Domus for about two years now, and um, the project behind me is, is probably our you know, kind of a flagship project, I think you could, you could say. So let's talk about yeah. this idea for a minute because, you know, it's really interesting to me and COVID notwithstanding, right? But you do have to recognize mm -hmm. that it has been a, a wholesale shift in the way people view the way that they live in general. Um, this too shall pass. Um, and at some point, there will be a sense of, of normalcy that we're going to get back to. That being said, the idea of co-working has been increasing in popularity for, for a long time. When you look at a city like L.A. or any of the major metropolitan cities around the country, the cost of housing has, has just gotten exponentially out of control. So the idea where you can take the living space, the bedroom, that sort of thing. And that is, that is private, but then take the co-spaces, the, the shared spaces where you can actually activate the rest of a, of a retail real estate property is just fascinating because you're able to integrate so many other things. So I'm curious. And again, I guess you have to touch on, uh, Daniel, where, where we are now with regard to COVID, and you said it, it's affected you in maybe single digits, but take that sort of out of the equation and, and look at the growth of this particular, it feels like this has legs. It feels like this has a, a long-term uh, potential growth that could hockey stick. And I'm, and I'm curious as to how you look at the growth of, because it is a shift in the way many people will live, yes? Um, absolutely. Uh, again, like I said, people have been roommating for quite some time. Uh, you know, we found that over 30% of our larger floor plans were roommate situations. So that was already happening. Typically, people were on, on sites like Craigslist and things like that looking for a roommate. And so, yes, um, so just like Uber and Lyft has basically normalized and commercialized ride sharing, you know, co-living now is experiencing that. And so you, you're seeing a lot of these very, very professionalized sites that handle the management and the, the helping you do the roommate selection and things like that and the place selection. And, and they do a very good job showing the pictures and locations and things like that. So I think it is, it is starting to normalize. But if you look at co-living, it should be looked at from our perspective. We look at it as just simply a unit typology. So, you know, in a market rate um, apartment building, you'll have your ones, you'll have your twos. You have your studios, you'll have some co-living and co-living really is just a way to make those places attainable that otherwise would not be. So you're right by sharing a living room space that's oversized in a humongous oversized chef's kitchen that you wouldn't see in a, in a typical one or two bedroom apartment. It would because the rent would be 10,000 bucks a month, which month, which there are units like that in the city. But in a co-living situation, you do get to experience something like that because you're sharing the cost with somebody else. And then you can kind of recess back to your room with an ensuite bathroom and a, and a working area in there and a closet and things like that. 
And, you know, and, and then as you go throughout the building, the building is programmed for a co-living situation as well. So you have co small co-working spaces and things like that. Uh, the amenities and such are set up to support the, you know, the whole co-living environment. So that's one thing. The other part of it is that it allows us to do something that we love to do. Um, at this point in my career, I'm, I want to have fun. I want to do things I love. I want to solve big problems, um, you know, as well as do my work. And, and, and I, like, I like serving people. Uh, this allows us to inject a lot of attainable housing at one time into the, you know, to the, to the supply of, of, of a housing, attainable housing. And it's, I would call it quasi future proof, meaning co-living units will always be a bargain to a studio or a one bedroom, no matter how far out you go. So I'm not going to call it future proof because yes, rents will rise across the board in all unit typologies, but with a co-living, you all you now have a you know some a, 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 a more economical option that's below a studio, and you can now graduate into a studio or one or two bedroom or into a home or whatever it may be. Yeah, um, let me piggyback on on onto what you're saying there, Daniel. Um, you know, there's there's an economic imperative that will always, I think, to Daniel's point, always keep the rents uh, lower. Um, it, it 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 is an alternate. You know, it's 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 a choice you can make if you don't want to spend the money it currently takes to rent your own studio or a one bedroom apartment. So um, that's that's the way financially the whole co living sector is, is set up. So there there will always be that uh, competitive advantage that co living has over traditional apartments, um, but it, it's not. Uh, just about uh, financing or, or you know, saving $100, $200, $300 a month on rent. I think there's also something going on demographically that all of us are, are aware of. You know, it's not, it's not a secret that, uh, uh, that uh, people are, are setting up, if they bother to set up a household at all, or if they bother to have kids, or if they bother even to get married, they're doing all those things later in life. You know the, the uh, age at which people uh, at which people are getting married or having kids has steadily increased over the last 60, 70 years, and I don't think anybody really expects that trend to all of a sudden reverse, you know, and, and go in the other direction. So, so there is that. There's some some real de demographic changes that are um, impacting this, and then there are also some societal issues, which we could just glance off of, but, you know, it's certainly food for thought. Um, a common complaint these days among millennials is uh, alienation, you know, uh, isolation, alienation. It's a problem everywhere. And this is one way of, of addressing that for some people, not for everybody, uh, but this is one way of addressing it. So there's some sociological reasons that also support uh, co-living. So, you know, what's really interesting as I'm listening, I, I think societally it's, it's from societal issues. I think it's really important to have that conversation because, you know, and I've, I've said this before, architecture is a language, design is the storytelling behind it. And generationally and societally, you'll have each generation who sort of leaves their own mark, um, every generation leaves their own group mark, right? And I think that 
um, millennials, we've had this conversation so much about millennials. I remember starting to talk about millennials, you know, seven or eight years ago when everyone, the manufacturers and the showrooms were trying to figure out how do we sell to these people? What do they want? How do we, how do we sell something to them? It, it, they, they don't buy anything, you know, they, and to that point, I mean, you guys have heard that before, but to that point, I think it's, what's really interesting is this, this particular generation that the millennial generation has in essence, self-isolated. You talk about the isolation, they self-isolated, you know, they decided that they kind of wanted to pull back out of society. They wanted to go back and live at home. They'll live in their parents' basement. And they were happy with that for a while. And I think, you know, they would buy one nice thing and then surround, you know, buy one great watch or great, buy one piece of furniture and then surround everything else with, you know, your low. So it was kind of a mini high-low mix, right? It was high and then a lot of low. But that became the, the indelible mark that they were leaving on society is that they were withdrawing to your point. And I feel like they saw Gen Z coming and I think it's scared a lot of them seeing this other generation coming up, taking their jobs and taking their living spaces, which put another crush on real estate and you know jobs. And they're starting to realize the importance of this. And I, I feel like what you're providing is kind of like the, the balance the the happy medium between the two where they're able to get more than they had before they're able to sort of re-engage with society are you finding that am i off base is that is that what you're seeing uh daniel i'll let you handle that one um, <laughs> no i mean um you know the the generations it's the biggest generation that our country's ever seen and they are driving a lot of trends i i can definitely say that and it what they seem to want is more experiential than ownership per se, you know, so meaning, you know, you can order a, a car now and just drive around for several days and then give it back, you know, uh, and with, and with co-living or with that building that you see on your screen behind Richard, um, it's fully furnished. You get to live in something that's designed by one of the best designers in our, in the state of California, probably in the, in the, on a short list in the country for a very affordable price in a neighborhood that's one of LA's top neighborhoods. You know, so these are the kind of economic drivers that would help somebody want you know, to live in a, a place like this, get that experience at a reasonable price. So that, to your point, is that one thing. You live in a stellar location and um, completely furnished in a, in a iconic uh, building in a historic neighborhood for a reasonable price. I think that falls right in line with what you were saying, Josh. Yeah, and, uh, Josh, I would add to that, um, actually two observations. Um, you guys aren't old enough to remember this, but I am. Um, my, uh, my parents, my, and my, particularly my stepfather, when he came to the United States, he lived in a hotel for years. Not, not for weeks, for years. And that was very typical. People would live in a hotel room. That's where they lived, and they would go out to a cafeteria to eat, you know. Um, our projects offer an amenities package that is very similar to a high-end boutique hotel, all right? All of us have dreamt about what it would be like to live in a high-end boutique hotel location. <laughs> and, and 
that's that's a you know I think as co-living gets his legs gets its legs, and as you see people becoming you know developers becoming more sophisticated about what what these buildings uh, can offer or should offer, um, I, I think it's going to become a more attractive option. It's a, it's a lifestyle option, also. It's not just a financial necessity. That's a great point. Yeah, and interesting too. And do me a favor, back away from the the design for a minute. I, I want you to talk to me about the activation of the spaces because I feel like that's also one of these things that is so unique about the co-living experience that there's a co-working space which eliminates the need for a commute. I mean, listen, two things, if you live in LA, other metropolitan cities too, but if you live in LA, you can't complain about the weather or the traffic. It is what it is. You're just gonna, you deal with it, right? The Santa Ana's, it's right. gonna happen. You just take your take your allergy medication and, and get used to it, right? <laughs> but the same thing with traffic. It is what it is. Um, COVID has slowed down the traffic flow a great deal, uh, but that's gonna come back. What this does is if your commute is a two minute walk and a mini ele elevator ride or a, or a stairwell down to your working space, that quality of life upgrade is massive. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, 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 in a previous life, I worked for Playboy and the studios were in the far end of Burbank and I lived in the South Bay at the beach and I had a wow. one and a half hour to two hour commute every single day to the studios. The studios were there. I couldn't, I couldn't not go. I had to go. But what you're doing by activating these spaces is you're taking most of that pain out of living. How do you activate the spaces? What are, I, I don't want to call them amenities, right? Yeah, I get, I get it, but I don't necessarily want to call them amenities. I want to, because it's, it's part of the, the overall experience that you're, you talk about experiential. Talk about these activated spaces. Okay. Um, and Richard, feel free to jump in here. But it, it, I mean, it is a collective uh, uh, brainstorming and experiential, I guess, uh, exercise. We have one of the top co-living operators in the state helping us from the very you know early on with carving out these spaces and, and then just can, helping us with the concepts. We have our ideas after owning thousands of apartment units. You know, you kind of understand how you know how people want to live they want safety they want convenience they want you know they want these things they want connectivity they want to they want peace on the campus but when they get out they want to be able to get to things you know fairly close by good grocers and good area amenities things like that and you you want to help your your property your your kind of apartment community be connected to the overall greater community um so that, those are kind of key things but when you internally when you get in the building what are the things that makes life easier from a you say a traditional apartment community perspective and also for a co-living perspective uh just strictly talking about co-living and in a furnished apartment building or a furnished unit yeah a person may want to step out of their bedroom and go down and take a meeting in one of the the offices you know or one of the conference rooms they, they may have higher you know uh printing needs and, and Wi-Fi needs from working remotely and things like that. Um, and so you want to, you want to have those spaces for there. They may want very quiet spaces where they can have a private phone call and speak loudly or have an area where they can launch a podcast from, which we provide. So the, you, you, you really have to kind of just walk yourself through the design and 
have good, I guess, consultants around you uh, that can help you just guide you through this process. But uh, Richard, feel free to chime in. Yeah, I, again, Josh, to your, to your point, um, <clears throat> we're paying a lot of attention uh, along with the co-living operator that we're working with currently. Uh, we'll probably you know, have them manage the building when it's done. Uh, but we're spending a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, how do people, what do people want in a co-living environment? You know, is it, what type of work environment do they need? Uh, what type of recreational, um, you know, I'll use the word amenities, but let's say, forget amenities, let's use features. What kind of, you know, entertainment features do they want? You know, what do they want to be able to do? Do they want to be able to swim? Do they want to be able to go up on the roof on a sun deck and have a 360 degree view of the city? You know, do they want a gym uh, on site? Uh, you know, do they want gardens? Do they want greenery? So you're all the time thinking like you would on just about any project. Uh, this is what architects do, Josh, as you know. They, they think about satisfying the need, the various types of needs that their clients um, have. And, and co-living is, is no different. Uh, we're just trying to anticipate the needs of a, you know, specific set of, of our demographic. You know, we're, we, we are geared admittedly at this point towards millennials. You know, there's a certain age group that we're, that we're catering to. Um, that, does, by the way, doesn't mean that in the future you won't see co-living situations that are geared towards, uh, you know, 50-year-olds or 60-year-olds. You know, I, th I personally think that's coming. It's not here yet, yeah. but I think it's on its way. And architects uh, for that demographic will, of course, take a different, a different approach. I'm really glad that you brought this up because this was one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, I, I'm going to bypass a bunch of other questions. I'm going to come back to those in a minute. Uh, but we have seen, as they do in Europe and Asia, we have seen an, an absolute explosion here in the States of multi-generational living. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can't help but feel like what you're doing right now could be altered to suit. Is that something that's on your radar right now? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I mean, typically we do a lot of demographics, um, you know, studies pre and during uh, construction. And if you were to do a demographic study in that neighborhood, which we've done before, you know, for doing a lease up for a co-living, uh, property, you probably find the average age of, of the responder around 40, though you'd have equally above and below and you'd have a lot, you, you know, maybe five or 600 people responding, you know, the average age would be about 40. So you'll have some 50 year old and up in there. And then you'll have some people as young as 19 or 20 in there, but your average age would be around 40. Um, it, it, it is, um, it, you know, co-living is, is something that I do believe that, like Richard said, will we'll at, at some point be much more acceptable to, to older person that wants to live in an urban core that is probably retired or maybe consulting in the second part of their career or something like that. And, and I think it's going to meet all kinds of needs that we don't even anticipate today. It's, you know, yeah, I guess I guess, you know, I guess what I'm envisioning as we're talking and I'm trying to, to sort of think about this because you you hear about you know, lately, I want to say it's really the last five or six years you've been hearing a lot about this, where 
millennial kids come back home to live with their parents. And then the older grandparents come back to live with the parents as well because housing and yeah. medical costs are just so outrageous right now in the cost of living and what you wind up with. And then the, the millennial kids and they wind up, you know, getting married and their spouse moves in with them. And then, you know, if the house is big enough, then you, they, they start having kids too. And you've got this truly multi-generational set, right? And I'm wondering too, as, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the idea that co-living can be altered to some degree to, you know, if you've got an entire floor of apartments and, you know, say that there's, there's 10 units on one floor to split it in half with a separate entrance off the elevator where you've got, you know, five of those have now been converted for one kitchen. And I, I'm just, you know, I'm not trying to be the architect here. I'm just sort of envisioning how, this could develop into something that caters to an idea like that, that isn't, that is not being addressed here currently, but is elsewhere. I mean, I've heard some creative uses. I've, I've heard of family style co-living where you have a micro unit situation where let's say it's a micro three bedroom and those families can have shared services such as after school programs or nanny services and things like that within the building. So the drop off is literally downstairs before you go to work. And because the building is set up for families with, you know, families with one or multiple children, the cost for that childcare or daycare educational service is, is they pay a fraction of that cost. And so it's not only is it convenient, it's, it's actually cheaper. And so it's better for the family, no commute, better for the children, no, no, no commute, right, you know, right to where they need to be and things like that, not having to leave the building, you know, it's the safety of the building. Um, so there are all kinds of concepts that are coming out of it. We don't offer anything like that at the moment, but um, it's just interesting to see the ideas that are already coming out of this. And I would imagine, too, that what we're seeing with the traditional workspace, you know, I'm hearing this a lot that what we're seeing with the traditional workspace, the traditional office space is, you know, people are looking at millions and millions of square feet of office space that yeah. has that has no foreseeable future in sight. And I would think that, you know, well, you gotta keep your powder dry and capital expenditure of, of this is good, you know, you gotta be careful with it. I have to believe that as we move forward, the real estate situation the scenario is going to change dramatically and present some simply amazing opportunities yeah josh it's uh well daniel will speak to a project we're looking at in atlanta right now but um just to your general comment you're already you're already seeing it in los angeles you're, you're seeing a lot of buildings that were commercial you know mid-rise high-rise buildings that are being repurposed so it's already happening and and i expect that uh, I expect that that type of activity is going to increase because, you know, look, people have gotten a taste now of not going into the office every day. And, and I haven't talked to anybody that doesn't like it. Right. You know, I haven't talked to anybody that, I haven't talked to a single person that goes, damn it, I wish I was going into the office five days a week. Not, not a single person. So I really, and you see huge corporations telling their folks, yeah, maybe in a year you'll come back. So th these are these are seismic changes.
changes that are going to be going on in the real estate market. Um, and, and something's got to happen to those, those buildings, those big commercial buildings that are going to now be underutilized. And this is one of the things that's going to happen. You're going to have traditional apartment operators moving into that market, but also, you know, co-living operators moving into that market and repurposing those buildings. I wanted to ask you about the, the other side of this. And that side is the learning curve that comes with co-living. You know, universities, I, I really do admire both public and private universities. The, this, the university system, they learn from everything that they do. And the, the living situation for universities is really interesting. They monetize it. They activate it. They, they, that, is, that is their bread and butter. I mean, that is where they, where they really get to engage with, with their student population. And so they have really owned this co-living like I've never seen. I remember my experience living at college years and years and years ago, uh, and it's vastly different now than it, than it was then for the most part. And I think there's a lot to learn there. At the same time, I can also remember when I first moved into a dorm and later into a fraternity, and those experiences are not necessarily something that I would ever tolerate now. And so I'm, I'm curious, <laughs> with, with co-living, there are, there are some pain points. There are some, you know, you're not walking into your, into your co-kitchen in your skivvies anymore. You know, you've got you've to learn how to work within this group environment. And I'm sure you've seen it. And I'm sure that you've learned from it. And I'm curious what advice you give to people, not advice so much, but how do you manage that? Because I would imagine it's a, it's a significant uh, learning experience. You know, it is, but um, people that are in roommating situations already, especially young professionals, we're not talking college kids, most of them are young professionals or someone who's on a work assignment for six months. They already know how to live in a, in a roommate situation. They already kind of have roommate etiquette. They know what they're getting into. They don't want a roommate that's walking around in their skivvies, you know, uh, making noise all night. And they, they typically don't. And, but professionalizing co-living with, with a co-living operator like ourselves or, an, or a professional co-living manager, like the group that we're engaging with on this project, they have already set up programming and rules and regulations to just pretty much remove all that pain. You know, they... We stock everything with shared goods, you know, like trash bags and dish soap and th things that people would typically argue about, like who used all the, the soap or the last trash bag and all that, that's already taken off the table. <laughs> you have people that settle disputes. So if there is something going on, they can, they can talk about it with a third party in, in a way that's not too confrontational and, and hopefully address it. So, you know, other things that people would argue about one guy's moving out. So now all the bills are going to go up and he was going to take his couch and his TV with him, you know, or something like that. Those items are gone. You know, the place is completely furnished and no matter who lives there, your, your costs are set. So a lot of the, those pain points that you're thinking about that stuff is removed when you do it in this professional setting and that stuff's already thought about up front. Now, all that said, <laughs> for all the married folks listening, <laughs> you live with anybody long enough and you know, there's gonna be some issues, <laughs> I mean, come on. And so, you know, um, it's, it's, I, I would say it's no different than living in a traditional apartment building. 
there are issues in across all of our portfolios. There's always, there are always things going on. Um, but co-living is a little bit different in this, in the sense that it is more of a connected community with community specific events and you get to know people and people tend to want to maybe through social pressure fit into that community and be, you know, be recognized as a good resident and a good servant of that community most of the time. Uh, and if you have issues with, with that people just need to leave, they can transfer to another unit, you know, unless it's just a situation where they just don't, it's not a fit. So that's typically how it goes. I think it's interesting, you know, and this is not a political statement, but just the mere fact that some people will, will wear a mask because it's the right thing to do, and some people won't because they don't want to, this sort of speaks to the rule following of things. And, yep. you know, all you need is, is for one person on a floor to, to botch the blackened salmon recipe in the, in the, in the co-living kitchen uh, yeah. to really get everyone upset, you know, and sort of change the experience. But to your point, you know, if you live in a neighborhood, you can have neighbors that are terrible neighbors anyway. And I get that. Um, yep. And I think having, having the rules in place, I think is really smart and providing the basics in place so that you never run out of things. I think it eliminates a lot of conflict at the beginning. And you've, you've certainly thought about that. I mean, things like that, I believe you've, you've sort of, looked at already is you know soundproofing which i think you've yes. addressed the hi-fi the the wi-fi having having high-speed wi-fi uh for everything um you know it sounds like you've covered off uh, you're thinking through bi-weekly cleaning you know that's a you know cleaning twice a month that's a huge thing you know so the the, the messy roommate is you know now eliminated because the common areas are clean you know well, they're, eliminated, they're eliminated periodically periodically <laughs> which yeah. is you know that's actually very helpful to come in and, and have a nice thorough cleaning that somebody else does every couple of weeks you know yep. it, it's a big help it reduces what you know daniel's already mentioned a lot of the thinking that goes on in co-living is geared towards trying to figure out how to reduce friction points um there's a lot of thought that goes into that tell me about your design because I think what's really interesting is when designing for the masses, you know, subdued colors, very, very basic, nothing, nothing too, nothing too, I don't want to say high end, but nothing too extraordinary design because you're, you're not trying to do anything that's going to turn anybody off. At the same time, you're creating an environment and you're creating an, an atmosphere that, you know, the design feels like it's really part of, your aesthetic is part of the process, the sales process, the value proposition, right? So tell me about the design itself and how do you approach the design and how do you approach it regionally and how do you approach it um, culturally? Uh, where, do, where does the design come in? I'm going to talk in very high level terms and I'm going to let Richard get all over that one because he's probably chomping at the bit. Um, I mean, I want to put a pin in culturally. Um, well, I, no, I'll, I'll talk about culturally first, because this is something that's relevant. You know, you've seen all the protests around and things like that. This is not political, but whatever side people are on, the bottom line is we're hearing an awareness around equity starting to bubble to the surface more in, in today's times, right? And so that is how we look at a project like this in a neighborhood like this, 
what the, the level of design that's going into this building, culturally, we're able to, at least for the moment, stem the tide of pushing people out when new projects come online. Typically you get a new building and only a certain amount, only a certain people can afford these types of properties. And, um, and now we are able to deliver high design, very well thought out project right in the, in the heart of a, of a fabulous neighborhood with all the best things of Los Angeles that will be culturally diverse. I mean, I, 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 would, I would venture to say it'd be hard to find another project like this in, in, you know, in the state of California. Um, it just doesn't happen too often. Uh, so from a cultural perspective, that's something that I'm, I'm particularly proud of right now. Um, the other question, what was the other question again, Joseph? The other part of that question? Uh, design. Yeah. Okay, just design in general. Design in general, I mean, yeah, it is, it is part of the, the value proposition uh, to align with, with, a, with a team like Lorcan Harley Architects uh, and, and also a, a, just a storied award-winning builder, um, developer like Richard to do something like this in the neighborhood that we're in. Um, but I don't want to take any of Richard's shine from, uh, from that question, so. Yeah, I have a, Josh, I have a very different uh, viewpoint <laughs> than the one that I think that you expressed. I'm not sure. Oh, I love that. All right. I think we're, I think we're not on the same page here. Bring um, it. I love it. <laughs> okay. So, so here's my opinion, Josh. Um, when it, it, first of all, it's, it's regional and it's, and it's location, right? Um, there's a huge difference between being in Los Angeles or San Francisco and Atlanta uh, and being in Des Moines, Iowa. And that's, you know, Des Moines might be a lovely place, but um, there, there's a different type of awareness and interest in design in these major metropolitan areas, which is where we're working, right? And my experience over the last 18 years of working in development uh, is that people really want great design. They don't want beige anymore. They don't want to, you know, figure out where that common denominator is. They're not interested in the common denominator, right? They're interested in the best design they can afford to get their hands on. When I was doing uh, condos back in the aughts, uh, uh, you know, my condos typically uh, garnered the, the, you know, among the highest price per square foot on the market. Uh, that was typical. That was not a, a, a blip or a fluke or anything else. We, we did one project, uh, Larkin, we Daniels mentioned Larkin and I did one project uh, in West Hollywood on Kings Road. Um, and when you compared our sales comps to other uh, projects, you know, within a mile radius, same type of project, infill, urban, you know, multifamily condos. Uh, we had 19 units in that building, Josh. And if you looked at the 20 top figures on a sales per uh, dollar per square foot basis, we had 19 of the 20. And we had 19 units. So go figure. Um, that was all about ex exemplary design. That's what that's about, you know. There was no marketing trick. We didn't need any marketing tricks. We have world-class design. People want it. Yeah, no, I I get that. I, I don't, and by the way, that was not a loaded question. I, I wasn't going in any particular direction with that. Mm -hmm. my, my premise for the question 
is that when historically, when you have a multi-unit, um, it, it, whether it's office space or residential hospital, uh, you try to make it as pleasing for everyone so as not to turn off anyone. And my question to you about this is, yeah. what is your approach to design? It's and I, and <laughs> well, so yeah. I, I think that, and, and I guess why I ask is because if you are, um, if you are speaking to a millennial and you talk about things that are experiential, part of an experience is, is not just what they do in a space, but what that space actually does for yeah. them yeah. visually, how it stimulates them. And so I'm curious about your design process. And, and it's interesting because I've spoken to Lorcan before. Um, he and I had a great conversation on the podcast. And I, you know, really, as far as his approach to infill, and what he tries to accomplish. And that's why I ask about the design, because also you mentioned Des Moines, right? LA is different than Des Moines. And there may be different, there may be different local flavors that you yeah. want to, different, different local artists that you might want to incorporate into the design and architecture and landscape. And so that's why I'm asking, I'm just curious how you think through your design and what you do with it. Well, look, Josh, one of the things that we're committed to, uh, for sure, on our, on our larger projects is we're, we're committed to hiring uh, design talent. You know, we're not hiring architects of the middling sort. <laughs> we're really not. Uh, we're looking for the best architects we can afford to hire. Those architects, those offices are generally filled with, with practitioners who are generally in the age group that we're serving, right? So they've got their fingers on the pulse, as it were. Uh, they've got their fingers on the, on the design pulse of, of their generation, all right? So I think it's a natural outcome. You know, when you hire the kind of architects that we hire, what you get is you automatically get a, get a product that's gonna have very wide appeal in the demographic we're interested in, in the market that we're interested in. So we never, I don't think in, our, in the two years I've been working with Daniel, I don't think we've ever sat in a meeting or sat talking to one another and, and said to each other, gee, we need, to, we need to dumb this down a little bit so we can expand our, our renter base. I don't ever remember a conversation like that. So we've not had a conversation like that. <laughs> and I do understand. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I mean, we, we have we have the opposite conversation. I mean, we, we want we want iconic properties. We want we, we want a showstopper. We want something that's going to serve the city and show the best parts of the city, you know, for years and years to come. But to Josh's point, a lot of times great ideas just end up on the cutting table all the time because when you enter finance, they you know, and you start to explain how these various budgets or expenditures are going to actually give you a monetary return. A lot of this stuff is the value is intrinsic. It's not able you 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 can't quantify it on the balance on the spreadsheet all the time. And so I, I get where you're going with it, Josh. But like you know, if you build the the recording studio for a podcast in there, how what what does that translate into in terms of dollars and cents, you know, on returns and things like that? Or you know, you know, it's just part of this is having the top people at the table 
bringing their their success and their failures to the table and their learn and, and just going through this experience together and coming out with with a, just a magnificent project. And we do this exercise every single time and it seems to work. You know, the formula seems to work. And, and I think that it's interesting too. I, I kind of feel like, um, I, I think at the, at the, when I first asked the question, I feel like we were having two different conversations actually. And um, I think that's good. Um, because we obviously, the three of us all s- sort of think a- in a different way. We're staying staying in our lane, and sometimes it's hard to jump into another lane temporarily. But when I talk about culturally, I speak specifically, you know, do you have an art budget for your projects? If you do, what is and how do you determine what your art budget is? And when you have your art budget, you know, I worked with the um, Los Angeles County Library uh, on, a, on a project, and we talked about their art budget. And sort of their process for incorporating local artisans in the work. Um, if you have a wall that you can put a mural on, you know, I, th- I think, for example, you drive around LA and it's not just LA, it's global. You know, the Kobe Bryant mural yeah. is is ubiquitous. It is all over the planet. It doesn't, it's amazing. Yep. It doesn't matter where you go, you'll see a Kobe Bryant mural. What's interesting is in LA, you have some world-class street artists here who create what they yeah. create. And in New York, you'll have a completely different perspective done by a New York street artist. So when I say culturally, whether you're here in LA or you're in Des Moines, you will have a local culture, a local art scene, indigenous yeah. materials, you will have things. And I'm curious if not for value's sake, not necessarily for, for financial gain to increase rents or what have you, but I'm curious if you incorporate, you know, how you approach design from that perspective. Daniel, can I speak to that one? Uh, <laughs> yes. we, we, have a, we have a project uh, in Atlanta um, that uh, where there's a, a large parking structure you know, it has to be there, right? And, you know, the city of Atlanta was concerned about the, you know, the visuals of, of having a large parking structure in this residential neighborhood. So we thought about it and we proposed to the city of Atlanta that we would take the, the facade of the parking structure, which is just pretty good size, and we would do a mural up there. Not only would we do a mural, but we would let the city of Atlanta, of course, has, has a person in embedded in the city who's in charge of public art so we went to that person we went okay here's what we're thinking about doing do you have a list of artists that we can talk to about this mural so um i think that addresses exactly what you're talking about josh you know it's 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 being aware of potential opportunities you know to bring art to bring culture into into a building and into the architectural process. So we're we're all about that. And and to, to Daniel's points, to one of the points Daniel made, you know, we're all about that, but we have to operate within certain financial constraints because obviously uh, we have investors and they expect returns. So they're not gonna let us blow their profits on a, on a piece of public art. But um, you know, we, we figure out, you know, what are we, what are the constraints here? What's the world uh, that, that we, uh, or the stage that we're going to be operating in? And then we try and do our best. So it is, what you're mentioning is a very, very important component to us and something that we're always thinking about. And, and to piggyback on that, um, Josh, 
connectivity is, you know, art and culture is contained in connectivity. When I say we want our, our communities to be connected to the overall community, that means in every way, not only, you know, from a transportation perspective, but also from a culture and arts perspective. You want the community to own this from inside and out. So this is something that you deliver to a community and it actually serves the community. So art is always on, art is always, there's always a line item for art on every budget anyway, just to let the cat out of the bag and answer the question directly. There is always an art budget. I mean, that we, we, you know, you, you have a group of people that really love art. I, I loved graffiti art growing up, though I've never done it, but I've, I, I loved it. I have not used any graffiti art on, on a project yet. I would love to one day when it's fitting, but I'm, um, I would, you know, look forward to, to, the, to the point when we get this project to a place where we can start installing some art. Well, and I guess, I guess, you know, the, the, the question also comes from a place where I'm really excited for you because, it, it, you know, I have a lot of conversations with designers and architects and part of the benefit for me and one of the things that I enjoy most is being able to, to see what's coming next. And if you talk to enough architects, you can see what's coming longer term. If you talk to enough designers, you can see what's coming shorter term um, because architects think in, in a longer time frame than designers do. And designers have a different perspective on how, to cha how, how changing um, taste will affect, you know, even the appliance industry. It's really interesting to see how it happens. And that being said, you're you're in a you're in a position where you can see you know how how co-living is is starting to ramp up in that hockey stick you can see how having something like a podcast studio could be a value to you but at yeah. the same time you have to think through okay so because we're, we're going to have more remote working happening and because family dynamics are going to change you know, the co-working space, if you're in LA, you have to be able to accommodate those residents who are going to be working with New York clients who are going to be starting, you know, three hours earlier than many of the LA clients. And if you're in New York, you know, you have to work time differences. And if you have international clients, which means you have to put your co-working space far enough away from the residential space and maybe far enough away from other amenities. Because if someone's trying to work and there's, they're hearing splashing out by the pool, you know, that creates an issue. So to think through all these things, I imagine that's really exciting at the same time to try to predict what's going to happen next. I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, a lot of this stuff, honestly, you know, with uh, in multifamily in general, uh, there, there's so much data out there on this. I mean, it's, you know, just, you know, owning apartment buildings and apartment communities over the years, you get a really good feel of what people typically want in their living space. I mean, and so you cover those basics. Most of the time, you're going to make folks happy. All this other stuff that we're talking about is great, especially we're in this moment. And when I don't, we don't want to be prisoners of the moment. You want to provide things because right now we're on, you know, kind of on lockdown and you, you know, home is like the center of the earth right now <laughs> for everybody. Right. And so, you know, that is going to shape some of our decisions, but it's not going to dictate everything on, in the long run. At the same time, um, you know, doing intelligent design for all the programming for a co-living building, again, you know, I'm, I'm going to credit a lot of our, of our design guys that we have at the table right now and, our, and all of our, you know, the, the um, professional co-living operators that, that we have at the table right now that have, you know, thousands of, 
of you know reps in that department they know they know it inside and out they know what people want they know where it should go they know what floor it should go on with which which side of the building it should face and all that making our jobs easier which is great at this point like specifically in my career you know the, the level of of uh consultants that we get to work with on a project like this i mean we are actually working with the best of the best and that you know, i think richard had mentioned that earlier that think through all this tediousness, you know, and make our jobs easy, you know? Yeah. Last question I have for, for both of you is, as you mentioned, Daniel, and and clearly we we are in a lockdown scenario. You kind of have like this, your own series of bubbles that you've created. Bubble has been like the word of the year, right? Um, You, you've got your, you've got your own series of bubbles. And I'm curious, um, do you consider part of your responsibility you know, when this is over, of course, getting back to event programming and sort of the the event programming and the experiential programming that you activate at each of your individual pro- properties is that something that's that's that you view as part of your domain? Absolutely, one hundred percent. That is, uh, you know, a hallmark of what we do. You know, we want to bring we want to provide services to the community, both the internal community of our building and the outside community. So yes, we want, you know, ten, you know, resident-sponsored events. Yeah, if they, someone wants to put on a, a Super Bowl party or a reading club, we want to help help sponsor those events. We want to bring in, uh, you know, uh, financial literacy literacy in general, um, job. If we can bring in, you know, job training and things like that, we want to empower the community, you know, that that live in these spaces. And so that is something that we are very, very, very passionate about. Um, and yeah, we can't wait to get back to that when you, there's not so many impediments, you know, to uh, to doing that. You, you can only have a, you know five or ten people or so in a room at, at one time. We'd love to love it where we can have attendance can be very high, and people people just love to do that. I mean, you you if I could go on and on about about this part of our business. I mean, it is something that we are passionate about, and, it's, and we can't wait to get back to. I mean, this you know this is part of why we do this. Yeah, Josh, a huge part. Josh, if you. Uh... Give me your email address. I'll, I'll send you an image of our movie theater in the sky. We're going to have a, it's not going to be a drive-in movie in Boston. It's going to be a, a walk-in movie on one of the exterior decks. So just, if you give me your email address, I'll send that to you. We'll yeah, to you, you bet. Absolutely. I can't wait to see that. That's really cool. <laughs> um, Daniel, Richard, thank you guys very much. I really appreciate the time. This is this is really exciting, and I I love having conversations with 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 people like you because I feel like you have tapped into something that. And again, it's exactly where we started, right? Everything's kind of coming to you right now because this is the way we're going. Well said. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Walker Zanger, for your extraordinary partnership, and thank you for listening. My goal is to bring you the stories behind Sublime Design, wherever that may be, to share those stories, bring you business strategies to help you build a stronger firm, and inspire you to do your most creative work. For more, please follow us on Instagram at Convo by Design with an X. Check us out at ConvoByDesign.com. And until next week, be well and keep creating. Mm-hmm.